You're listening to the Golf Science Lab, where we look at performance and learning through the lens of research. Hey, I'm your host, Cordy Walker, and today we are back with part two in our series on helping you to get better faster with coaches Corey Lundberg and Matt Wilson. Today, we are diving into a bit of a Q&A. Last week, we had this conversation about what it means to get better faster, what are some of the principles and foundational elements, and today we're answering a few questions, and then toward the ends, you know, we just have a really honest conversation about this whole thing of practice and learning golf, and how it's not actually that easy and you know we all aren't that great at it and i think you, you'll want to listen so make sure to stick around to the end and hear that also we have this giveaway still going on they're giving away some free coaching all you have to do is get the book better faster leave a review on amazon take a screenshot of that review and tweet at one of us golf science lab Corey or matt uh really any for any way for us to see that and you'll be entered to win here's what you get yeah, we, we just had someone that read the book contact us and ask us to come out and see them and spend a day with them and then develop a pr- ongoing practice plan based on the assessment that we see. So while I don't think it's realistic that we can come out and see everybody in person because there's some other costs associated to that, what we would be happy to do and what I, I think would be of a lot of value is to once someone, whoever our winner is, once they go through the assessment plan, is that we can be that coach that guides them along you know, changing or editing the practice plan as necessary over time. So take a period of time, maybe that eight week plan, and we will personally uh, design it with tasks that we think will make the biggest impact on their games. And then have some time throughout that eight week period where we touch base with them, decide if we're doing enough to move the needle, how we can change and alter the plan, and then ultimately give them a a good program to follow over a long-term period of time to to help reach their goal. So we're excited about the opportunity to, to do that for somebody. Make sure to leave that review on Amazon, take that screenshot and tag one of us so you can enter to win that. It's awesome. I think every golf instructor should spend time understanding what's going on with the golfer in the ground. And here's a great explanation of why from PGA Tour instructor Mark Blackburn. From a coaching standpoint, whilst the feet may not be directly responsible for what's going on, it's a little more ankle up, the feet are a great proprioceptive cue for players and students because from a biofeedback standpoint, one of the things that's really powerful about this is that the student can actually see what they're doing, the visual representation of how hard they're pushing with the lead or the trail foot, the trail toe, the lead toe. Now all of a sudden you can actually use that to help them control what's going on here. So it's kind of you're taking it from the other end up because people are walking around all day long, their proprioception is so good in their feet. If you want to learn more, make sure to go through the Body Track Certification. It's a fantastic program. I highly recommend that you do that. You can learn more at golfsciencelab.com slash bodytrack, B-O-D-I-T-R-A-K. If you go to that link, type that into your phone, you'll be taken directly to info on the certification so you can sign up and get started. Or you can click on an image in the article along with this episode to get all the details. I highly recommend that you do. We are back with a little Q&A today. Our Q&A comes from fantastic golf instructor, Derek Hooper, and he loves the book and had a few questions for y'all. So I thought we'd, we'd ask him when we talk about him here. And we're going to start with kind of this analysis question and talking about skills testing. So he writes, do they do skills testing on the range or do they ever watch players on the course? And kind of a second part to that is, do they ever use rounds analysis rather than skills test? 
um, for that portion. So what do you guys think? Those are great, great questions, Cordy. And I think uh, the, the, the short answer is, is it depends on specifically who that player is, what our relationship with them is to this point, and if we even have one with them. So, for instance, when we wrote the book, I mean, the, the whole entire vision for it was it was something that that person could do independent of a relationship with us, still get some valuable information about their game and start pointing them in direction of sort of the path to mastery, so to speak. But if we're looking at our own students, specifically ones who are really, really focused on on scoring better and, and playing better and have significant goals when it comes to their, their scoring ability, we definitely take them on the golf course. There's, there's no better test than the game itself. Um, and looking specifically at stats also help us to inform some of the goals that they or we might set in conjunction with them with regards to the specific outcomes that they're trying to achieve from the practice plan. Um, so I would say it's, it's, it's more of a 360 degree look. The, the tests give us some nice information, but in order to sort of fill the background, so to speak, round by round analysis, things from golf stat lab, shot by shot, shots to whole, things like that are incredibly important for sort of monitoring progress and the initial establishment of goals. And then also just seeing how they get around the golf course. You might see, I guess, a, a quantified level of performance in one particular area, but if you don't really see how it happens, you don't get the whole story and you might be misled that they could be somewhat deficient, maybe technically in a certain area, when in reality, it could be a strategic issue. So there's there's a number of different things at play. Um, so I would say we take a pretty comprehensive approach to skills analysis and assessment. So was the reason that you used kind of the on the range analysis assessment in the book, just for simplicity's sake, that that's a lot easier than having someone track five rounds of golf and then come back and go through that? Yeah. I mean, I think that realistically, if we, if it were up to us, we would be on the golf course looking at this because we, as Matt says, we get the most realistic view of what's going on, but the challenge that we have and the one that we try to to tackle with the book is we realize that there's constraints and that not everyone has the time uh, and the access to a coach to do this. And so when possible, you know, it, it's when it's not possible to to go out there with a coach and and see these skills in real conditions, this is as close as we can get to give us a snapshot of where the skills are so that we can start to develop a plan that that, that uh, can improve the most important areas or, or the most pressing priorities. Gotcha. Gotcha. So if someone's reading this book or if, you know, if they're trying to get the most out of this, they, they go through this assessment on the range. How accurate do you think that's going to be? Like the assessment you go through in the book of what your skills are on the golf course. Have you found it to be 80% accurate? 100% accurate, 50% accurate? Yeah, I think for what it's designed to do is to let us look at the skills and then the layers of that skill. So say for finesse wedges, the first layer of that is, can you make solid contact? And then from there, can you control your distance? Can you control your trajectory? Can you control your spin? So for that aspect, it's 100% effective, but it doesn't take into account some of the tactics, some of the decision-making, some of the softer skills to actually playing golf just because it's it's impossible to do when we're when we're in this environment or when you don't have someone that that can provide a little bit uh, more nuanced observation of performance. So it's for what it's designed to do. We think it's very effective. Yeah, it's, it's certainly as as Corey alludes to, sort of serves as as that compass that kind of starts pointing us in the right direction. But as again alluded to, it doesn't necessarily provide a perfect picture of what's going on because a lot of those game elements, so to speak, just aren't necessarily there or very difficult to recreate 
uh, in a range environment. So I'm just uh, looking at the book here. We've got uh, the 21 ball test where you hit all these different shots, uh, draw fade, low, high, etc. cetera. Uh, and you kind of analyze that and rate yourself using uh, some of these, these uh, plans you guys laid out. It's awesome. It's really cool. Question for you. My buddy is a, let's just say 15 handicap, doesn't really have much control of his, his ball flight, right? How does he go through something like this? He, he doesn't really know how to hit some of these shots, right? So he's, is he just going to not do well at this assessment and then be led to a different place? Or how do you deal with that? Not so great golfer. That's why there's different areas that we're grading on that test. So it's not just, did you hit the shot, the intended shot? You were looking at each layer of that skill. So the first one is, did you hit, uh, did you hit a solid? And you're, you're having this little moment of reflection after each trial where you, you're, if you hit a poor shot, you're not just raking over another ball. You're trying to evaluate, well, what aspect of this skill am I struggling the most with? And so for the 15 handicapper that may not have as good enough concept to be able to, to hit different kinds of shots, they're going to be pointed towards the most pressing piece of that skill, which is going to be, am I hitting it solid most likely? And then from, from the results of the test, they'll be pointed to a practice plan that is designed to attack that directly. Just sort of building on what Corey said, I think when I know we, we work with the higher handicap golfers or middle handicap golfers, their concept of why they're struggling to have more control over their ball is, is often absent. And by going in, as Corey said, and, and looking at the layers of the skill, specifically contact, start line, curve, et cetera, um, they start to get a better understanding, a more clear picture of, of really what it is they need to do. And having that laser-like focus on that one critical variable uh, stands to serve them them quite well over the long term and more so even as they, as they go through those plans. I want to kind of dive deeper into this question. He asks, uh, do you ever use round analysis rather than, than skills tests? Kind of getting into that. I'm guessing the answer is yes. You guys do use some analysis tools to look at, to look at rounds. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. With all of our clients, whether they be professional or collegiate or high performing juniors, or even recreational players that are committed enough to input rounds, we use golf stat lab, which, you know, outside of PJ tour where you have shot link and you're able to really dig into this robust uh, set of performance metrics. Golf Stat Lab is one that we found that most closely duplicates that. And so, um, yeah, I would say that more important than a skills assessment is the stats and being able to look at what's really going on in the golf course, which areas are holding someone back from performance. And when you talk about the title of the book, Better Faster, I think that if there's one thing that can accelerate uh, your improvement and how efficient your practice time is, you would have to look at stats and what is actually occurring on the golf course and what areas present the, the largest room for improvement. And on that same note, perhaps on a different line of, of reasoning, it's also really important to know what you're good at. And I think even in light of the book, often people, I should say in light of the title of the book being better, faster, a lot of people don't necessarily recognize that paying adequate attention to your strengths is really important because if you compromise a strength at the expense of improving a weakness, you just end up in the same place. So it's important to identify both what you're doing well and that area of opportunity that has the greatest potential for growth for you and and attack both with, with vigor and focus. How do you guys tease out what someone is actually 
because I know that stats can sometimes be misleading as one thing leads to another thing, making it look like it's worse than it actually is. And there can be some level of complexity there and, and not just saying like, oh, you're not hitting greens. You need to go practice your irons. Like, how do you guys tease that stuff out? And that's a great question, Cordy. And I think it goes back to like what Corey mentioned in terms of there's there's layers of skills within a skill. And if we see someone who doesn't statistically hit a lot of greens and we take them through a that 21 ball test, for example, and they do incredibly well, that's sort of a big, big, big alarm bell or a big light bulb for us saying, you know what, this potentially is, is really far from a, a, a technical challenge. And I, I think it's important for us to look at areas of opportunity extending beyond just that technical clarify my concept bit. And that's why we go into all these different quadrants sort of throughout that book and the task design matrix, which underpins the book. And it's it's looking at the execution of the skill, not just from that technical perspective, but from the others as well. Yeah, just to add to that, I think that it would depend on two different factors. One, the quality of your stats. So as I referred to with Golf Stat Lab, we have strokes gain metrics for each area of the game. And so you know, by nature, that's isolating certain parts of the game. So you, they're not combined with any other area. So when we're looking at your strokes game putting, it's a true look at what's the quality of our, uh, or, or how good is the performance on the greens. Uh, and then we can tease that out even further. We know what your one putt percentage is from four to eight feet, how that compares to uh, a PGA tour player or a player of, of similar ability. And then the other part of that is the stats uh, analysis has to be coupled with a really good debrief with the client. So the the first usually 10 minutes of a session with the player is digging into the stats because as you say, it doesn't tell us everything. And there may be circumstances that we're not aware of that are contributing to to the, the scores. And so we want to combine that with a really good evaluation with them. And oftentimes it creates this really good opportunity for, for a player to re- reflect on a round in a way that, that's more meaningful than they may have done otherwise. And, and they kind of figure out some things on their own. And it just points us in the right direction. From, from there, if you combine stats with a really good debrief of recent performance, it's really easy to know where we should be headed and which areas we need to put most of our attention on. Gotcha. So what I'm kind of hearing is that Maybe, you know, just one of these things by itself, there could be some holes in that. And by combining a few of these processes, whether it's round analysis with a skills assessment, with a debrief, like you can really start to put the picture together and find out what's actually going on, because it, it could be something that that's hiding in just one of these these ways to assess people. Is that kind of right? Yeah, and I think it also just depends on everybody has these constraints, whether they be time constraints, facility constraints, access to a coach that can guide us towards these uh, these secret areas, I guess, as, as you refer to. So, you know, it, it would be great to have all of these, but it's just not always realistic. And that's part of the, the reason why we wrote the book, too, is we wanted to to k- keep in mind those players that may have a constraint on time. It's not their full time job to play better. It's something that's a a hobby for them and the time that they do have and that they are able to allocate to getting better, you know, we want them to be able to make the most of it. And so to give them a few different tools at their disposal uh, based on, you know, whatever constraints that they have and what they're able to do to give them the best shot at getting better. That's an example that we put in the book of an eight week training program, but it's not always the one that we would use. And I've used a few different ones and really it's, it's based on how much information a player is going to have during that time. So we may choose if we know they're only going to play one time a month 
eight weeks may not be the most appropriate time period because we want them to have some info and some data that shows some progress towards the goals that we've set. And so if, if we're working hard on our game and we only were able to put it to test in two different rounds, then we may get discouraged or we may affect motivation when we don't show a, a lot of tangible progress towards those goals. And on the other side, we may have players that are involved in a lot of events, a really dense tournament schedule. And then if that's the case, we would we would shorten that feedback loop down to a week. And so it really just depends how often the player is is playing and able to put some time towards their action steps that we've defined for them in that in that practice plan. That makes sense, Corey. And it makes sense that that changes depending on the player, depending on what they're up to. Uh, and that kind of leads into this other question that Derek had here and was how does that eight week plan differ for an average player versus an elite player? Was that a hard question to answer? Like because they just they're completely different or are they somewhat similar? I wouldn't pose that question as average player or better player. I think it's a function of how committed they are and how much time they have at their disposal. So I wouldn't make a differentiation based on skill and how I put together that practice plan because essentially that practice plan's function is to create a a goal, a clear sense of purpose when they go out to practice, some very defined action steps that they can follow that will contribute towards that goal, and then just ongoing feedback for how they're doing. And if they are making progress, you know, that provides this motivation of I want to continue. If they're not making progress towards that goal, the feedback tells them, hey, you may need to change something about how you're attacking this, and maybe we uh, redo their practice plan. So that wouldn't change based on ability level. It would change based on Am I being realistic about this golfer and their ability to actually go through these steps? So more than likely, someone who's not all that committed and who I don't feel like has the the motivation to or maybe the time to really dig into one of these practice plans, I may condense it down to something uh, that that better fits what they're what they're actually able to do. Yeah, I would say a golfer is a golfer is a golfer. And as Corey said, it's it's really, sort of the time, commitment, and, and motivation of that player that determines how content-rich that practice plan is. Because ultimately, it'll have a pretty similar structure, but it just might have um, goals that are more aligned to really what is feasible as far as what can be attained from from that golfer based on their time, commitment, and, and motivational resources. So that's one of the questions. If you were going to create a practice plan for me, we'd have we have some type of assessment of skills, but also an assessment of how much time I have and what the facilities are at my, you know, that I can use. That's part of that, that questionnaire that happens before you create a practice plan. For sure. And then on that is also like availability of time to, to play golf. You don't want to, in my opinion, sort of take away that, that time. Cause ultimately that's what they're trying to do is, 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 is play golf and play has an incredibly important role in, in their improvement. And so it's really looking at how much am I playing? How much do I want to play? How much time and energy do I have available to, to spend on this? And those are two really honest things uh, that we make sure that we work with people really upfront in, in that whole process before we sort of dive into that practice plan, so to speak. How much does a practice plan change, um, do you think? And like, what are some of the factors that dictates that that plan changing? Is it if someone is really struggling with, a, you know, with, with something, if they, you know, if they don't have a lot of time or they suddenly had a lot of time and they spent more time than you thought, like, what are some of the factors that will commonly change change a plan that you set for let's just say like the eight weeks yes so let's just take the time point let's say we've got a player in front of us that doesn't have a lot of time typically our 
practice plans are going to include some some tasks that are are going to touch on a, a variety of different skills. So if we know that time is an issue, well, then we're just going to pick a primary goal and the one most urgent pain point that that golfer has. And we're going to design, you know, three or four tasks that they have to do every single time. You know, and, and we're also really careful on making sure that these practice plans are task based and not time based. So we're not going to tell them to go practice for two hours. We're going to say, hey, these are the three to four things that you need to, to check off the list every time you go to the practice facility. And once you're done, you're done. So that's one way that they would change. The other way that they would change is if we weren't moving the needle. And this happens. You know, this happens with with good players. We've set a primary goal, a supporting goal, and a secondary goal, and we're just not moving the needle enough. So then as coaches, we have to step back and say, why is this happening? A is the player really going through everything with the the kind of detail and, and structure that we we need them to? And if they are, and we know that they're they're doing all the right things, then we've got to take a hard look at the plan that we created and try to figure out why it wasn't effective. And so then we go back and we edit it. And you know that because we have um, we're keeping kind of real time stats with through Golfstat Lab, and we're able to look at at each round and and what's getting uh, better or not getting better. Then it allows us to to kind of change that on the fly. So it's as coaches, that's a big part of our job is we're monitoring that uh, and changing it as as we see fit. Yeah, it's just boils down to as, as Corey alluded to being responsive and adaptive to the needs of the person going through it in real time. It might be dialing up the difficulty, might be dialing down the difficulty, it might be removing a task, adding a task. It's it's sort of this open jar into which we put or take things out. How do you make sure that you're not being reactive, though, if, if you have all that communication, all that feedback from a player and, and the practice plan isn't just based on, you know, their feedback and that might be emotional or, you know, just reactive to what happened that day when the, there are ups and downs? Like, how do you make sure that it is process kind of focused? Yeah, and, and I think that's where you have to really look closely at what is what is variability, like what's the noise brought on in the fluctuation that is just literally... Um, accounted for in terms of just normal variability, and then what is actually a physical change, um, which is difficult to do, and it takes time, which is why things like stats are so important, and then sort of having that good baseline of information. And typically, when we see variation that is sort of less than 30% of what is normal, then that would be um, considered just just noise. But anything over and beyond that would be um, sort of the effect of that training and so really looking at it and sort of espouses to the need to have that ongoing statistical component to one's training and play. And then also having some baseline, which is what we tried to provide every golfer through this book, uh, that they can go back to to sort of determine um, the ultimate effect that that training has had on them. The only thing that we would add, we kind of have a, in the book, there's this choose your own adventure kind of mind map that has you answer a few different questions, which are designed to point you to the right area. And uh, hopefully, you know, my, my true answer to that, to your question was you've got to depend on an expert coach that's not going to be reactive uh, and is, has enough experience to know when to pull the plug on certain things and when to make those edits. But in the absence of that, we tried to provide in the book a tool that you can use that would almost answer the questions that we would be asking as a coach 
to point us to the right direction to to know okay we need to go this area with our practice plans and this is how we would edit because we didn't want the book to be you read it once and then you're done we wanted you to be able to recycle it and go through the the assessment and the those kind of mind maps over and over again to you know because our skills and our confidence in different areas are always fluctuating it's just a reality of golf so we want it to be something that can serve you over a long period of time Got it. I mean, if we're looking at this, you know, and kind of just theorizing on how people learn and how people practice, what is your guys thought on that, that idea that people are, are reactive in their, in their practice, they're reactive in, in their training. And, and do you think coaches fall into that trap as, as well of, of, you know, falling into that when a student comes to them and, and says, oh man, you know, we got to work on my driver. I just, you know, I hooked it out of bounds there on, on 18. And the reality is they're doing just fine. They just happen to hook one out of bounds like we all do. I'd say uh, 100% guilty as charged have been definitely reactive on probably more occasions than I'm proud of. Um, but I think that's, you know, part of learning and part of getting better. But I would say as a whole, golfers for the most part are reactive. They are very, very quick to abort mission and generally just try something different on every shot. And while we speak to the importance of conceptual clarity and conceptual understanding and having the ability to detect and correct error, I think it's also a pretty fine line there where you become very quick to do that. And consequently, something that just may be, again, the normal variability within a round of golf could stand to be a turning point that that may take things off the rails. And so I think it's just important to have that sort of uh, measure twice, cut once approach and making sure that um, the course that you set for yourself is the one that, that you stay on such that you can accurately assess whether or not um, something is just normal noise or actual habit. It is really almost as simple as, as what is variability, like what is a normal fluctuation in performance, which is 30% of, within 30, less than 30% of what normal variability would be. So if you took an average and a standard deviation, anything greater than 30% of your standard deviation would be a training effect. And that would be grounds for intervention or the justification to suggest that an intervention worked. Anything less is noise. Obviously, you need a really great data set to be able to do that. But that's the difference between noise and effect. Is this variation within 30% of what is normal? So standard deviation of an average. Mm -hmm. um, so basically the degree of the variance around the mean. So that determines whether or not it is an effect or if it is uh, just, again, noise. So how do I explain this to my to my men's league buddies that we play together twice a week and they're 10 handicaps? I mean, I mean how do they understand this concept of of not being not being reactive in their in their practice, not being reactive in their in their thought process? Yeah. And so I would say I would say if you hit balls on let's say the side of a football field. So you get on, on one of the, on the, one of the boundary lines and you hit 20 shots. How many of those shots would go on the boundary line? Probably none. And so let's take out some outliers. So we'll take out, uh, but so I guess the normal distribution is what? 68%. So you take out your three worst. And so when we look at sort of that cluster, so to speak, that should be your expectation. So to me, it all just boils down to expectation. And then your goal with trading is to gradually make that a smaller cluster. And so that's making your bad balls better more than anything. It's, it's sort of tightening and making that variability around average much smaller. And to me, that is the value of, of 
that are faster is that it provides golfers with that way in a systematic fashion to sort of reduce the variability of the outcomes they produce but through to, effective training. Yeah, to add on that is the the part that is assumed here is variability, and there is some degree of it. Deciding on what that number is, while Matt may have a good formula for us, the 10 handicap buddy in your men's league is probably not going to have a sufficient data set to determine that. So he just needs to know that there's variability that's part of this process of getting better. And I think that mindset and just that realization is uh, a helpful thing to keep in mind so that that they, they aren't too reactive and changing up a practice plan. But in, in maybe even, a, Cordy, a, a better answer to all this is that having a plan, it makes it a lot easier not to be reactive. Because if, if we don't have a plan at all, we don't have these clear goals that we're chasing after, well, then at, every time we go to the range, we're reacting to the last range performance or the last round. But when we've got a really clear-cut practice plan that's organized and based on what our goals are, I think it, it can be it can save us from, from changing around plans and, and going through that cycle of just reacting to the last shot or the last poor performance. Yeah, dude, that plan, as Corey so eloquently stated, definitely serves as, as, as that anchor. Let's try to make this as, as real as possible, maybe, and, and let me get honest. So I, I went to the range today for let's say 45 minutes, then I played a quick nine holes. And and I'm trying to figure out what is a plan, right? And, and to be honest, I don't feel like I have a plan and I feel kind of like an idiot because I know a lot and I probably should, <laughs> right? Like I'm kind of a hypocrite. Um, and so like, here's, here's the thought is I'm working on tempo training lately. So hitting shots of 60, 80, 100% um, or even less. Uh, working on balance and working on feeling pressure in my feet. And so I have these kind of few things that I, that I work on when I have time and, and then I think about, is that a plan or what is a plan? I, I think those are tactics. Those are like, what are you working on those things to what end? So what are you trying to improve by using what sounds like are really effective tactics? So what I would ask you is, well, what ball striking metrics are you looking at that's going to provide you some signal as to your progress or lack of progress that would then indicate that maybe you need to mix up your tactics a little bit. So again, it, it goes to some kind of baseline and it doesn't have to be a stat program. It can be, you know, it could be the, the ball striking skill snapshot where you're just looking at, okay, I'm going to take a look at what my baseline was and where I'm going now. And, and that's going to determine, um, if I'm actually making, if I'm, if I move the needle at all, you know what I mean? Yeah. And to just to build on that, it's like, what's the overarching why? What's the compelling reason to go about using as Corey said, those tactics, what are you working towards? What's that vision of the future that you're striving to attain by going through X, Y, and Z. And I think that's a really clear and really important factor that sort of not only ignites, but also keeps that motivational fire burning that keeps you sort of moving on that path. And I think if you don't really have that overarching why, or if it's very broad and not very specific, I think it's easier to get off course or maybe be on the range, as you say, Cordy, and not really feeling like you're really accomplishing anything. Well, I, I think it's 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 nice to say having a why or having a goal, but like, I just, I, I'd like to win more money on Thursday nights. <laughs> that's, okay, that, so that's, like, that's why. unpack that, unpack that. What's going to allow you to win more money, Cordy? Uh, yeah, so that's your outcome goal. What are your what process goals would support that? That would be shooting a lower score, or getting a higher handicap. One of those two. Oh, great. 
And so which of those is of more interest? Probably shooting lower scores. Great. So based on your game, where are sort of your your five buckets currently sitting? We'll call that putting, short game, wedge play, approach play, the T-ball, tactics, psychology. Um, where do all those elements sit? I, I don't know. I feel slightly panicked right now, now that you just say all those things, because I... I have no idea. And I don't even know how to right. start. I mean, is that... If, if only you had an assessment tool that would help you have an objective view of where those certain skills are. If, if right? only. And, 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 and so really the, like the, the, plan, the plan is basically after you sort of peel the onion back onto all those layers and really look at, okay, this is, this is what I want to do. This is why. This is kind of where I'm at. Oh man, I'm actually pretty good at this. I'm not so great at this. How do we make sure that I can stay producing at this level and in, in skill X and really just build up skill Y. And if I can link those two things to the desired outcome, I have the recipe for satisfying work. And if I have satisfying work, I'm going to feel a little more compelled to go about and go through this whole practice plan because I see the value in it. Are scores a good enough assessment plan? What do you mean by scores? It's like looking at scores, right? So I, I shoot a, uh, I shoot a 36, a 42, a 39, a 40, a 34, like, and that's over the course of a, a month, let's say, right? Like, I, I mean, or does it have to be some type of actual stats, some type of assessment beyond score to be able to to look at these with? Yeah, we we've got to know what's what's making up the score. Why is the score what it is? And so I think it's obviously that's our ultimate uh, measure of are we making any progress? Is are we shooting better scores? That's a result we're worried about. But if we're looking at how we're going to affect it, we've got to unpack it a little bit more. We, we've got to know the layers that make up that score. And, and if we're going to go practice, like you said, am I, do I have a plan? You've got to know that you're working towards something. And I think that's, that's a, as Matt said, that's huge for the motivational element too, is I, I know that I've got a structured plan that is designed to show me tangible, tangible results of my, of my effort. I think of it this way, and it's just something we have to do for, for sport in Canada is we have it's certainly at the high performance level, we have uh, a podium pathway, which is basically constructed of two things. We have a results track, and then we have a gold medal profile. And so basically that results track determines my progress relative to a medalist, so to speak. Where do I sit on that continuum? And then the gold medal profile are the attributes that allow me to perform at my best and what their current status are. And so while we'd love to see progress relative to that curve, we can't really have that unless we're addressing those elements held within sort of that technical, tactical, psychological, physiological, environment, equipment sort of standpoint. And so score is, is, is one measure. It's one measure, but I think understanding the layers that produce that score and those individual attributes, those are really what the plan seeks to address. If you hear this in the podcast, that means I've decided to be completely transparent. Um, if you don't hear this, well, it's not in the show. Um, and, but I mean, my question is this, like I have a lot of tools at my disposal and, and I spend my time thinking about all this stuff and like trying to help people and like share these conversations with you guys and all these, all these incredible tools. And I'm not even doing this myself when, and I, and I play a couple times a week. Right. So I worry about my friends that are, you know, these 10 handicaps. Right. I, I worry about them because they're definitely not doing it. Right. And so what needs to happen? Like what, how do we make this available to them? How do we make this more friendly to them uh, so that, 
some of this so people can change their mindset and kind of change the way that they they go about looking at this that's the whole reason why we wrote the book is to address the challenge that that you just mentioned is is the fact that we want to make this as accessible as possible for a recreational player that doesn't have the time to devote to getting better. It's not their full-time job. So we want to provide them with an efficient way to make the most out of their practice. And I hate to to plug the book so aggressively, but that was our whole mission. What you the the issue and the obstacle that you just described was our whole mission with the book. When we don't have access to the type of coaching or the the time to really you know, that great players that high performers have, what's our recourse. And that's why we try to develop a skills assessment and a practice plan that's designed to, to, to grow with you and to, to change over time as your skills change. Thank you so much for joining us on today's episode. Make sure to pick up the book better, faster, leave that review on Amazon and take a screenshot so you can enter to win some free coaching from the guys. Uh, this is just a fantastic conversation about learning about getting better at this game. I hope that you enjoyed it. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast and stay tuned so you can join us next week for part three with the guys. It's going to be good. Thanks for listening and we'll see you then.